justice uh, very speedily. And so even though there's going to be a final day of justice, we don't have to wait for thousands of years to present our petitions before the Lord and to receive some restitution in, in this life. God's corporate executes speedy trials, just like the law in the Old Testament guaranteed that there would be speedy trials for anybody that was brought to court. Now, our Constitution guarantees it too, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> but if God lays that down as a principle of justice here, how are we going to say that that same kind of justice is not working and, and that when God himself says he brings speedy justice? And so the obvious question that comes to the minds of some people, okay, how come I don't receive uh, justice? Uh, I've been uh, praying about this, I've had other people pray about this, how come I have not received justice? And I think part of the answer is that the church has simply been unwilling to follow the principles of justice that God has laid down. And in fact, I think some Christians, they told me this. They don't believe that there is any justice in this. You've got to wait until the end of time. They don't believe in praying these liberatory psalms, uh, like Psalm 58, 59, Psalm 137. There's just any number of liberatory psalms uh, that are there. They think, well, that's some Christian. That's not really something that we ought to be uh, praying. Uh, we need to be loving. But you see, love and justice, you know, they both can have their place. David was extremely loving to, to Saul, extremely loving to his son. But when you go before the court of justice, that's going to cost you being in the of God's word. You may wish it would be something else, but God says this is, uh, this is the way it should be. Now, before we even get into the song, let me give you one small illustration of how this would work out in real life. And maybe next week we'll give a few other examples. There's a missionary that I know who really opened my eyes uh, to this uh, whole subject and was so encouraging when I saw the ways in which he brought Satan before the, uh, the bar of heaven. <laughs> and uh, one of the examples that he Right away, he would only be asking for twofold, 200% on top of the returning of that check. If he did not return it, he was going to ask God to strip him of all of his resources if necessary. And he appealed to Proverbs 6, 30 through 31, which says, People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Now, the sevenfold dealt with essentials for survival, okay? So he said to Satan, you can have your choice. It's going to be twofold or it's going to be sevenfold, but I'm taking this to the court uh, of heaven. And the missionary then presented his case before the Lord, the evidence that he had, 
and he gave his petition for uh, two, uh, the, the restoration of the money plus uh, 200%. Three days later, <coughs> they caught the, uh, the banker teller who had stolen the money and hidden the evidence. And so he got his 10%, and then he said to the Lord, Okay, Lord, I'm asking for restitution now. This is the principles of your justice. This is the way you said that you run all of your, all of your uh, uh, just uh, laws. So he asked for the 200%, and uh, in three days, uh, he got another check for $20,000. And so he was saying, there has never been, he got very speedy justice, okay, vindication, avenging. He said, he has done this over and over again. There has never been a time where he has had evidence. And he says, if I don't have evidence, there's no point in even presenting it to the courtroom of heaven. There's not going to be a case, right? But any time that he has had solid evidence, he says, there has never been a time when he has not had speedy avenging uh, from Satan. Now, that gives a whole new perspective to why Christ can say, rejoice and be exceedingly glad when you are persecuted. Leap for joy, he even says in one place when you're persecuted. What in the world is he talking about? He says, great is your reward. And whether that is true of the remuneration in history, which the first half of Mark 10, verse 30 talks about, or whether it's talking about vindication in eternity, which the last half of Mark uh, 10, verse 30 talks about, and he talks about both. Now, if you're dead, <laughs> you can only get avenged in heaven, right? Your relatives can get avenged in time. But... Um, uh, we'll talk about how, how he dealt with this when people were killed by persecution next week, when pastors were taken out. There's different principles of justice in the Old Testament that he would apply. But let me just try to, it's maybe a silly illustration, but let me try to communicate to you how it's possible to rejoice even when you are hurting. Let's say that you're working for John Haynes. Well, not John Haynes, because he didn't have a lot of employees. You're working for some company that is uh, building buildings, and there's some fellow worker that's beside you, you know, you're peacefully hammering in nails, and every once in a while he comes over and he belts you on your fingers with his hammer. And it's on purpose, and that's going to be something obviously that's going to upset you. Why in the world is he doing this? But let's say that you knew every time he hit your fingernail you would get $20,000 of restitution. Well, it still hurts. I mean, you're smarting. But you can rejoice too, you know, ka-ching, you know, <laughs> into the bank goes $20,000. You might even say, hit me again. No, you probably wouldn't uh, because God wouldn't appreciate that. That would um, say, you asked for it. You're not going to get justice on that one. But you can see how it's possible to be in pain and still rejoice at the same time. And uh, that's, I think, what uh, uh, we need to uh, think about when we're taking Satan to the courtroom of heaven. Now, Luke 18 promises us that if we ask in faith, we will be avenged speedily, and all of the saints who cry out to God day and night around the world also have the ability to be avenged speedily, but we will not get any restitution whatsoever if we don't ask. We won't get any restitution if we're not asking in faith, and if we're not asking it according to the principles that govern court procedure in the Bible. Now, many Christians say, oh, the Old Testament, that's boring. Why in the world would I want to study that? But when you begin to realize it really is relevant in God's courtroom above as well as down here below, then it'll motivate you to study out. It's no wonder to me that many Christians don't even get into the door of the court, let alone get their case uh, heard, or why many Christians get them thrown out of court. They simply are not aware 
of how God works in justice in the Old Testament. And so this week and next week, what I want to do is I want to go through this psalm, and I could have picked any of the other war psalms as well, but this is a nice short one. And I want to go through it phrase by phrase and show the nitty-gritty of what it means to present your court case before heaven. And this week, we're only going to go uh, try to motivate you to get there, you know, take your case there, and it's going to be Roman numeral number one. First thing that we see under Roman numeral one is that David brings his own complaint to God. He says, give ear to my words, uh, O Lord, consider my meditation. Now, the literal rendering in the margin you'll see is consider my groaning. Why is he groaning? Well, he's the victim. And so as victim, he must personally present his complaint before the courtroom of heaven. Uh, when I pray these war prayers, I don't pray silently in my head. I pray out loud so that the demons, I can resist them and they will flee, number one. Um, they can't read your mind, and I think you do need to pray out loud. But even in terms of this court principle here, there may be something to the fact of, you know, of uh, announcing your intentions out loud. But regardless, how can witnesses agree with you in public prayer if you're praying silently? Okay, there needs to be this outward prayer. We can have silent prayer on many other kinds of petitions, but when it comes to avenging, I think we need to uh, be personally present and uh, personally bringing the petition. Uh, the, the one exception in the Old Testament, there's a place for witnesses and intercession, but the one exception to the victim having to present his case was murder, uh, because obviously he's dead. But even that's technically not an exception because the victims are, uh, uh, are not just the guy who got murdered, but the loved ones who have lost uh, the one who was murdered as well. Now, the reason why God insists that the victim present his case personally in the Old Testament is that God wanted lim limited government. He did not want a police state that's out there snooping in the bedrooms, roaming the streets, you know, laying out traps, trying to figure out where the criminals are and prosecuting them. God wanted there to be a citizenry that had self-government, such self-discipline, such self-initiative, that they themselves were, in a sense, part of the government because they see the problem, they're responsible for bringing the prosecution to the court. Then that's where the, the, the court steps in. Now, I think we understand that and we appreciate that when it comes to, uh, you know, state uh, government. We believe in very limited government. And yet somehow Christians expect God to operate by entirely different principles. We're lazy. We don't want to bring our petition to the Lord, but we just expect... You know, the Lord's eyes are roaming to and fro. He's going to see it, and God's just going to take care of this just injustice. And when God fails to, then we become discouraged, and we think that God does not care. And God says, no, of course I care. You know, I've got my courtroom open. How come you didn't come to court? And uh, the person might respond, well, I had my pastor praying for me. I had my mother praying for me. God says, yeah, but my principles say that the person who is the victim, he needs to be pre presenting his case before heaven himself. And the person might respond, but God, doesn't your word say in Deuteronomy 10:18 that you administer justice for the fatherless and the widow? And God will respond, yes, of course, I always give justice in my court, and I give it speedily if the fatherless and the widow cry out to me and look in the context and it says that and i'll give you another example exodus 22 verses 22 through 23 you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child if you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me i will surely hear their cry but he says if they cry out to me 
It'll, he'll surely hear it. There's going to be justice that he's going to give, but they are responsible for bringing that. What does James say? You have not because you ask not, right? And so if we are not praying, don't expect any answers. You know, uh, we have got to be a praying uh, people. And I probably shouldn't even need to bring up point A here because, uh, you know, this should be fairly obvious, but I know human nature because I know myself. And uh, we tend to want George to do it rather than we ourselves doing it. And in this case, God being George, like, Lord, do I really have to go through all the work of presenting this case? Can't you just give justice, you know, uh, on, on your own? But God assures us, if the victim does not present his case, that case is going to be thrown out of court. No justice can be expected. Second principle that we see here is that the case must be orally presented. Now, some of this you'll, you'll see is just these are arguments for having a public um, a prayer where at least two or three are gathered together in prayer. But in um, uh, verse 2, he says, Give heed to the voice of my cry. And again, when I pray these prayers, I don't pray silently in my, in my mind because I want the demons to hear. I want anybody else to hear. I want to resist them. And uh, so there needs to be a voice that uh, is uh, audibly heard. Now, even if we don't understand the reason for it, I think it's just a simple matter of, of court justice. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15 says, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Um, we believe in our hearts. But with the mouth, confession is made. And I think Matthew 18 is such an excellent example of this. Matthew 18, 18 through 19, gives this fantastic promise with regard to spiritual warfare. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And so, very encouraging verses. Jesus is our advocate. He's our lawyer. And he says, when we are following biblical principles, and you'll see, if you examine that passage in light of everything that we go through today and tomorrow, uh, next week, you'll see it follows all of the same principles. When we follow those, he says, Jesus... Our lawyer is going to be in our midst arguing our case before the Father, and his cases always get heard. But the question is, uh, are we following Old Testament uh, law? In verse 16 of Matthew 18, he gives the principle we're just talking about here. He says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Now, we'll get to the witnesses part, but it does need to be oral. And if you're asking for vengeance, uh, you know, personal prayers, God hears silently in our heads, no problem. You know, you're asking for peace, you're asking for victory over some sin, you're asking for a greater measure of the Holy Spirit, you know, all kinds of things like that. But when you're asking for avenging, when you're asking for justice, it involves another party. In fact, according to Scripture, they have the right to hear the accusations, right? And so it, it follows a different um, procedure. Now, the third principle is that the victim himself must be loyal. In biblical justice, if a person was guilty of the same crime as the criminal that he was accusing, he could not bring charges. Okay? The criminal could not charge another criminal for the same criminal act. I mean, that'd be ludicrous. He needs to be prosecuted, right? What right does he have to bring these charges before the court? 
And we understand that, you know, when it comes to uh, uh, court principles here on earth. But let's apply that to prayer. Why would we expect that God would want to answer our prayers for justice when other people have been cruel to us when we've been cruel to them? You know, it's, it's, it's fundamentally uh, hypocritical. And so that's why David here says that uh, he is loyal to God. God is his king and his God, verse 2. Uh, he goes on the side of God's hatred against various types of wickedness, no matter where the wickedness is found, in verses 4 through 6. And I think many Christians pray with hypocrisy. Um, they, they don't want done to them what they're doing to others. Isaiah 30, verse 9, God questions, why in the world, in effect, God says, why in the world should I give justice to you when you're crying out to me and you've cast my laws behind your back? I mean, I give justice based on law. You don't like my law. Why should I give you justice? In uh, Psalm 66, verse 18, it says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Isaiah 1.15 says, God will not hear the cries of Israel who are suffering under murderers. Why? He says, you've got blood on your own hands. Okay, so it's that, that, that principle that if we've got sin in our hands, we cannot expect to be getting ju uh, justice from God. Now, lest you become discouraged, I, I do want to point out something. God is asking for loyalty, not perfection. Because every one of us has sins in our lives where none of us perfect. But what God says, the moment you sin, you need to confess your sin. You need to get back up, determined to follow after the Lord. You need to hate your sin. You need to ask for the cleansing of the Lord's blood. And when you come cleansed in his blood, of course he's going to give you justice. He says, a, a broken and a contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. But he does despise people who hypocritically hold on to their sin while getting on the case of people who uh, are, are, are sinning against them. Okay, the fourth principle in this psalm is that the case must be prosecuted in public. And I've given a number of scriptures on this that uh, are re rela uh, related to uh, state courts. Um, God did not want secret trials. He wanted there to be the sunshine laws, you know, where anybody could come in and if there was tyranny going on, the public would find out about it. Uh, fa fairly quickly. He had the same principles of justice in church courts. And one of the things that's um, unfortunate, I think, in, in recent years is because of lawsuits against churches, uh, because of discipline cases, a lot of denominations that believe in discipline, and there's a lot that don't practice it, but a lot of them that believe in discipline have told their churches, you know, you really should no longer have public trials and you no longer should even announce what the results were to the congregation. What you should do is have secret trials and don't announce the results to anybody. And I think that violates a fundamental principle of justice. In fact, it's a great way of leading to tyranny because they're utterly unaccountable to the people then, right? And so uh, that's definitely not something that... Um, that I would approve of. Now, I don't, wouldn't approve of unbelievers coming to witness a court trial because the scripture says that, that that's a shame. You know, we shouldn't even be uh, uh, displaying that before the world. But any member should be able to witness that with one exception if both parties want to have private arbitration. Now, we're quite familiar with that principle of justice, and I don't think we'd have it any other way. We don't like, as Americans, we don't like the star uh, chamber trials in England. But why do we think that we can get redressed from God's courtroom for finances lost or anything else, but only do it in the private closet? 
the private closet, you can ask for any number of things that just relate to you or blessings upon other people. But when you're talking about justice, you're talking about God taking something from someone else and it needs to be done in a, in a public way. And that's one of the reasons why the New Testament indicates that there are some prayers that will not be answered unless they are prayed where two or three are gathered together. In fact, on Monday mornings in our prayer meeting, I think I want to, from time to time, you know, take on some of these problems that people have faced in a formal way where there's written charges brought up, brought up and there follows all the biblical procedure and we act as witnesses on behalf of this person asking for restitution from uh, Satan's kingdom, taking it out of Satan's high. Uh, but uh, anyway, this is one of the principles I think that needs to be present. Point E says that there must be a formal accusation with specific details, and since I'm going to deal with that next week, I won't cover it here, except to say we can't just be general in our request. It needs to be specific. We need to have specific laws that we're appealing to. And if you need help in writing up a prayer to the Lord that you know appeals to law and uh, goes through the specifics, I can definitely help you. Point G says there needs to be witnesses. When Matthew 18 talks about the spiritual warfare and the binding of Satan seeking to redress, it says that every word has to be established by two or three witnesses. That's Matthew 18, verse 16. Every word. And so, again, uh, an argument for public prayer. And by the way, if you examine some of the uh, prayers like Acts 4, is really a prayer before the courtroom of heaven. It's a reigning Herod and, and Pilate, Pontius Pilate, before the court of heaven. Examine that prayer in light of what we're looking at this week and next week, and you'll see, wow, it's uh, exactly what the Old Testament saints did. Look at the prayers in, in the book of Revelation. The New Testament prayers followed this, uh, same, uh, this same pattern. Now, we many times tend to think of Satan as somebody who has no rights of justice. But God gives everyone justice. It's of his very nature to give justice. And that's why we're going through these procedures. Do we absolutely need to bring uh, advance warning to demons like that missionary did? I'm not sure that that's uh, uh, required in uh, Old Testament law. Um, you know, we, we can present our case and God can interrogate Satan like he did in Job later, you know. But I would think it's at least consistent with justice, so I wouldn't criticize the missionary for having done that and spoken out loud and uh, given advance notice. But point H is mentioned in Jude. We ought not to bring frivolous or false charges against Satan. Just because demons are evil does not mean that we can accuse them of things that they haven't done, right? And I think there's a tendency in Christian circles to do this. They see a demon under every bush. Everything's the devil's fault. And let me tell you, most of the sins we do, uh, you know, it's, I mean, every sin, even if the devil tempts us, is our fault. But most sins that we engage in can be totally coming from the flesh apart from satanic involvement whatsoever. And Satan, I think, gets uh, blamed for more things than, than he really uh, deserves. He's not omnipresent. He's not God. He can't be everywhere at the same time. And so we need to have good evidence that what has happened was indeed demonic or maybe it's Herod or Pilate or whoever it was, that we've got our facts straight. Here's a little bit of um, legal policy that's interesting. Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 19 says, If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. 
And the judges shall make careful inquiry, and indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. And that means if you're bringing imprecations against some ruler, against some person, and you don't have your facts straight, that curse may end up landing right back on your head. Uh, according to biblical justice and so we've got to be careful how we do it and that even according to jude applies to uh false accusations against satan he says you don't know what you're doing when you're railing against satan and the way in which you're doing it and he rebuked them in jude saying that they speak evil of whatever they do not know the tenth principle is that we should show humility and respect before god and never be arrogant with god now, I've had fellowship with some uh, pastors that just make me just cringe, shrink at the way in which they yell at God. Now, I can handle passion, I can handle urgency, I can handle emotion in our prayers, but I cannot handle screaming at God. I cannot handle disrespect uh, for God. All through this psalm, you see expressions of the utmost humility and respect for the Lord. He doesn't want his case thrown out of, out of court, right? In fact, I've seen... Um, well, I've not seen it. I've heard of judges who have told a person, you know, to wise up. And when they weren't wising up, said, okay, back to the jail cell for seven days. And when you can figure out how to be respectful in court, you'll get your, uh, your case heard. And some of these people get thrown back two or three times before they get their case heard. But I believe when there is lack of respect for God, we are not following the courtroom etiquette that the Old Testament lays. God's saying, you don't respect me. I'm not going to respect you. Your case is thrown out of court. And so David knows this. In verse 5, he says, The boastful shall not stand in your sight. He didn't want to be boastful. He wants to be able to stand in God's sight and be heard. He knows in verse 7 that he himself is in need of mercy, so he's got no reason to boast or be prideful. He makes clear he wants to follow God rather than to dictate to God in verse 8, etc. And so come with humility. Now, that does not mean that we cannot wrestle with fervency before his courtroom. And I want to end with the whole issue of zeal and um, fervency in prayers. I think verses 1 through 2 show urgency. And I think they show wrestling. Now, some people have a misconception with the notion of wrestling with, uh, with God in prayer. I think we do wrestle with God in prayer. Paul talked about, he begged the people to strive together with him in praise. And the word for strive means wrestling. But we're not wrestling against God, okay? He, he's quite uh, desirous of, of giving justice to his people. What we are wrestling with is the resistance of our flesh and the resistance of Satan. Satan will do everything he can do to keep you from praying. In fact, I didn't even realize where it was coming from when I first went to the mother church. I had such an awful time praying. It was like constant oppression i couldn't think and was distracted and i mentioned to you when i began praying the warfare prayers i felt the oppression lifting and i began to realize this is demonic he doesn't want me praying and um forget why i went down that rabbit trail but uh we do need to be praying con constantly praying wrestling in prayer i think i think is what we were dealing with and david may not have felt like getting up in the morning Okay, he, he may have had little energy, he uh, may have been too busy to pray, but he says, I will pray. My voice you will hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. I'm not going to give in to my flesh. Nothing is going to keep David 
from warfare prayer because he knows without it he would be lost. Uh, I think many times we just are not aware of the degree to which prayer is essential to our success. A.J. Gordon once said, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you can never do more than pray until you have prayed. Let me read that again. That, I, I think that's a very, very true. You can do more than pray after you have prayed. Why? Because you now have God's empowering and you've got his favor. It's going to be something that can last for eternity because you're doing it in dependence upon God. He says you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you can never do more than pray until you have prayed. Now, verses 1 through 2 also show groanings and cries. And as I mentioned, the literal Hebrew is, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groanings. Give ear to the voice of my cry. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with weeping before God's throne room. Uh, emotions are not improper in court. In fact, you know, if, when you've been done in, <laughs> tears are going to flow. Spurgeon once said, You can draw near to God even though you cannot say a word. A prayer may be crystallized in a tear. A tear is enough water to float a desire to God. In fact, sometimes our tears are the best and most eloquent testimony to what has been done to us when we're before God's courtroom. And I dare say that the greater our total dependence upon God, the greater our fervency is going to be because we know we must lay hold of God. We can't do anything apart from him. We have a desperation, a hunger. We have a thirsting uh, for him. And if you have never known what it means to groan and cry in your prayers, it may be because you don't know what it means to pray in the Spirit. Because the Spirit groans, and there's plenty for God to groan about in this world. Genesis 6, verse 6 says, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Romans 8, 26, The Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings too deep for words. So, what does it mean to have groanings and cries in our prayers? Is that foreign to you? It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be because if the Spirit is, is uh, working in us, causing us to pray, and Jude 20 says we need to be praying in the Spirit. So if he is doing that, there's going to be groanings because it says the Spirit groans uh, within us. Uh, he is the one who moves us to pray takes our prayers and pleads them on our behalf. He enables us to pray, teaches us, empowers us. And it's as we pray in the Spirit that I think our selfishness begins to be shunted aside and we begin to be able to take on kingdom prayers like we see in this psalm here. Ask God to pour out upon you a, a spirit of prayer and supplication because you've got loved ones who are still bound in bondage to Satan. You've got strongholds. In fact, next week I'm going to be showing how um, as several commentators point out that there's Hebrew words in here that clearly indicate this is a demonic warfare that he was involved in. There's demonic strongholds that were moving these people that were tormenting him. And we'll, we'll get into that next week. But you've got relatives that have strongholds of Satan. We need to be taking them on. We need to be uh, 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 um, burdened in our hearts with these groanings and cries. I like the way Spurgeon phrased God's help in our prayers. He says, God, the Holy Ghost, writes our prayers. God the Son presents our prayers, and God the Father accepts our prayers. And with the whole Trinity to help us in it, what cannot prayer perform? And we're going to finish off the sermon next week on, on uh, the specifics of how to pray for uh, justice. But for today, I just want to encourage you to start taking 
with two or three witnesses, start taking the things that Satan has robbed from you, maybe slandered of you, or done different things against you and say, Lord, I want justice. I want for everything that we have lost, I want you to take it, not just get back what we lost, but twofold or fourfold or sevenfold, depending on the principle of justice that I was involved in. And I want you to also be convinced that God delights in giving justice. He's not a God who's just holding out. You've got to wear him down until finally he gives it. God delights in giving it. So what I want to do is I want to end simply by reading Luke 18, 1 through 8, and I want to read it from the New American Standard Bible. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and to not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, shall shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He's saying we need to pray in faith. We're not going to get restitution if we're not praying in faith, we're not coming, we're not following uh, his uh, principles that he laid down. So I hope that this psalm, as we go through it next week and finish it off, that it will encourage you that uh, there really is hope and that uh, Satan had better watch out because uh, we're coming after him. In fact, that one of, that's one of the things that missionary found out is as he went after Satan, every time Satan went after him, Satan began to give up it just wasn't worth it you know one of the principles of justice was uh if a sheep is stolen it's not just twofold it's fourfold and uh, he had some of the uh, people there muslims who i think it was muslims who had killed uh uh, members in his congregation he said lord these are sheep that you entrusted to my care and you have said in your word your own justice that uh, when we bring it before you you will give justice I'm asking for four people out of Satan's kingdom for every single one that Satan has killed. And the Lord granted his prayer. When a pastor was taken, he took a principle in the Old Testament that related to fivefold justice. And he said uh, when uh, there was a pastor that was uh, killed and another was taken out of the ministry just because of so much demonic harassment, uh, he was just overwhelmed. He couldn't uh, engage in it. And he went after Satan on that one, and he said, Lord, uh, you have said fivefold justice. And the Lord was giving it, raising up leaders left and right. And so I just want us to be encouraged. God delights in this kind of warfare, but we've got to engage in it in his way and with his means. And uh, even taking on your lips the, the war songs of the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the encouragement of your word. And I pray that we would not see these as archaic, sub-Christian psalms that ask for vengeance. But, Father, we would use these against Satan and his kingdom. And for everything that he robs from the church, uh, we would use that to extract even more. Father, whether, where there are martyrs, may, Father, the, the, the victims of those martyrs lay hold of these psalms. And may the blood of the martyrs indeed become the seed of the church. I pray, O oh God, that you would help us to be encouraged to lay hold of these things and to give Satan no rest any time that he 
comes and he attacks us. May you be glorified, Father, and may your kingdom be advanced as we seek to follow your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.